Posting Up is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Try getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post. Coming today with my buddy Sam Amick from USA Today before uh, we both will be at Warriors uh, Warriors Pelicans in a couple of hours. Uh, so Sam, how, uh, how are you? And uh, just to start with, uh, what are you most interested in seeing tonight in Seth Curry's return from his brained MCL? Mr. Bontemps, I thank you for having me as always. Uh, what I'm, I think, looking forward to is I think to compare his last return to this one. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what shades of similarities there might be, what might be different. Uh, you know, if you remember, I don't remember where you were physically the last time he came back in that game against Portland a couple of years ago in the playoffs. I, I know I was in San Antonio. You might have been with me. Uh, what remind me? What, what yeah, was your, we were uh, both watching the game there. Yeah. That's right, and that joint after the Spurs game. Yep. Okay, there we go. Because that's the, the memory I have is we're not there, but we're watching on TV. That's right, we're playing pool, and we're doing our thing after the game, unwinding a little bit. And Steph started slow, and there was some rust. And so you were guilty early on of thinking, okay, this is what happens when a guy's been on the shelf for a while. And then, lo and behold, he just warmed up, and he heated up, and then he went crazy. And then he was pointing at the floor and saying, I'm back. And so, you know, we'll see. I, I think, you know, I went to shoot around this morning, and there's like a, a pretty palpable excitement level among his teammates. Um, Clay, in particular, I thought was funny just because Clay, the th- one of the things I love about him is I think he's going to just love the game of basketball until his dying day. And like his perspective and his feeling was that he said, I, I feel like a fan. He goes, it's Steph. I played with him forever. But it was almost like an out-of-body experience for Clay where it's like, sure, I'm going to play next to him, but I can't wait to see this dude play ball again. I think Steph's passion and the way that he has attacked his recovery and the training, it's something else that a lot of his teammates have talked about recently. And I think that gets them even more excited because they, they respect the fact that he's not one of those guys that just kind of waits for his body to heal on its own. He has been very aggressive and been in fifth gear trying to get back on the floor and they're fired up to see him. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, they spent, this team spent 82 games, not caring about playing right. and waiting for this time of year. And you saw right from the beginning of the Spurs series that things were different uh, in in that first round series, even though they did fall asleep again in game four and look like they did in the regular season and lost. But, you know, then when you see the way they played in game one, this is a team that clearly is ready now to play. And the fact that they're getting Steph back now, uh, you know, with at least three games before a potential series with the Rockets, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they're all – you know, I, I'm sure part of the thinking here, you know, I shouldn't say I'm sure I know part of the thinking here is that, you know, by getting him back now, there's plenty of time to get him ready for, you know, the one series that could really trip this team up between here and winning a title, which is, you know, playing presumably against the Rockets in the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the timing is great for them. The position they have earned is great for them. They, you know, like you said, the one slip up against San Antonio and, and that didn't give Steph any extra time and it did cut into their preparations, but Obviously, they look, they look great in game one, and they're fine. 
And, you know, you can talk about Draymond and the fact that defensively he's been a monster again. And even Kevin Durant, who early in the season was in the discussion for defensive player of the year and then had fallen off in the second half of the year. I mean, the job that he did in game one against Drew Holiday early on and and what he's doing on that end of the floor, like they're engaged. And and you've been pounding that point for quite some time. And you've been right that the the human element to this whole thing, that that idea that they just haven't cared for a while. You know, I, I think there's truth in the idea that it's not much more complicated than that and now we're seeing the manifestation of that now we're seeing a team that's fired up and that wants to dominate you know and they want to go out and show the league that that's fine it's cute that everybody fell in love with the Rockets and thought that we fell off but you know we're still the same team yeah and they also uh you're also looking at a team that um you know that that has four of the best 15 or so players in the league and no other team has more than two and that that really was why all year long, I just kept saying that about this Warriors team because you know the bottom line is they just have more talent than everybody else. And if their guys are healthy and their guys are playing hard, there's really not another team that can come close to them from a talent standpoint. And when you combine the talent standpoint with the continuity they have, it's you just don't see that fall short very often in the playoffs. And that you know, I that's why I have been pretty consistent on that. And I, I do think that they're gonna you know. Barring you know any setbacks here with staff or anything, I think they're going to have a pretty you know fairly easy road from here to the title. With that being said, they still do have to play the Pelicans, who had a great first round against Portland, um, and you know that maybe re- you know inflated their stature in the eyes of some people, given the way they played against the Blazers. But you know this is a tough matchup for them. You mentioned how Kevin Durant spent a lot of time on Drew Holiday in game uh, in game one. You know the fact that they the Warriors just have a seven foot guy that can throw on Drew Holiday. Uh, is a sign of their depth. The, the, also, the fact that they have a guy like Andre Iguodala, who is one of the you know been one of the most versatile defensive players in the league for a long time, they can just stick on Nikola Mirotic and shut him down. Is another sign right. of the depth that they have. Um, as as we look ahead towards Game Two here in a few hours, do you see uh, any way that the Pelicans can make this a competitive series, given you know some of the mismatches that Golden State presents them? That they're just I think going to have strong, uh, a tough time you know adapting to and, and overcoming. Well, I think, if, you know, I don't know, spitballing here, it, it probably starts with, I think, an inside-out approach when it comes to AD. And if, and if you can find a way for AD to, to kind of hand Draymond his lunch maybe early on in the game and be dominant and be transcendent and scare the Warriors coaching staff enough to overreact defensively and maybe not go down the road that was so successful last time, you know, and that, and that comes in the form of, you know, Anthony coming out and hitting six of his first seven shots and the Warriors saying, okay, plan B, because he's on a different level tonight. You know, and then maybe you have a ripple effect in there that opens things up for the other guys. I think AD is going to have to be the one to, to kind of break the dam down. Uh, I, you know, if it stays the way it was, Drew had a fantastic first round, had a really good season. You know, I watched a lot of tape on the Portland series, and, and it's just, I mean, a night and day. It's, it's true. C.J. McCollum and Evan Turner and guys like that and Damian Lillard, who even physically are nothing close to the stature of some of the guys the Warriors are throwing at them. And the versatility that has served the Warriors so well for a couple of years now, I mean, that's that's the edge. That's what makes it tough for guys like Drew and Meritage because even a Clay Thompson could sit there like, fine, if he winds up on Meritage, all right, he's okay. you know. And, and there's just not an easy matchup, uh, however you slice it. So, you know, I think personally, I know we overreact to stuff. I, you know, game one was enough to tell me Pelicans are in trouble. I don't know where they 
find the answers because the pace thing is a non-starter. You can't beat the Warriors at their own game. And it was about 105-plus possessions in game one. It was above the season-long average for both teams. And, you know, the Pelicans were the fastest team in the NBA this year, but they don't have shot makers and all-stars like the Warriors do. So that's just not a winning strategy. No, but they're not going to slow down either. And I think that's right. that's the other that's the other problem for them. I mean, I, I do think you're right. I think the one path they have to potentially make this a series is if AD can get Draymond in foul trouble and therefore off the court. Uh, that would start to shift some of those matchups around and perhaps uh, allow, you know, Miritich and our holiday to get going. Um, right. I think, you know, that, that to me, I, I thought all week coming into the series, the key all last week, the key to the series to me was Miritich. You looked at that first round when, when New Orleans looked really good, it was when they had Miritich going for 20 plus with Davis and with holiday. That was the way they ended the regular season on such a hot streak. And, Right. I wasn't surprised that the Warriors started small because I thought they were going to try to find a way to put Andre Iguodala on Miritich as much as possible. Uh, they don't like the Warriors don't like Draymond Green guarding shooters because Draymond tends to freelance and help a lot, and he'll leave shooters if he's guarding right. them, and then right. that gives up wide open threes. If you have Iguodala, who's a little more disciplined in that sense, kind of stuck in Miritich's chest, um, that's not going to allow him to get off, and he was invisible. In game right. one. And I think that right. to me, if you can't get Draymond out of the game, then they either have to play some of their bigs more, which he can then take advantage of, or, you know, maybe you shift Kevin Durant over onto him and that gives Holiday a little more of an opening. But, but right. I, you know, I think when you saw in game one, Draymond having a triple double, he has been fantastic for the most part in these playoffs. And I think, you know, the key, the key to this team is uh, defensively, if you can take him out of the mix through foul trouble, then the Warriors are not the same defensive team. And offensively, if Iguodala and Draymond have to shoot a lot and aren't able to make threes, um, that puts them in a, in a tough position too. I think in game one, those guys combined to go four for 10 from three or four for 11, something like that. Um, and uh, I, I think anytime the Draymond and, and Iguodala shoot over 35% in the playoffs, I think the Warriors are going to be undefeated because they, right. they just aren't going to lose that. But if you can, if they can have AD get Draymond, neutralize Draymond a little bit defensively, and they can force those guys into mi- missing some shots uh, when they're left open, I, I do think they have a chance to make this competitive. I just think, like you said, the fact is they really only have three guys that can score for them. And Golden State has, you know, it, you know nobody's really going to stop AD, but they have effective matchups to shut down the other two guys. And that, like you said, they're going to play fast. And then it's, you know, AD having to score 50 every game to make it close. And, and that, that's a pretty tall order, even for a guy as good as him. I mean, and the Warriors are just too good defensively, I think. And maybe I'll eat my words, but I think for AD to, I mean, listen, he gave them, what was it, 34 and 12 in the last regular season matchup. So, I mean, he's gone off. I think he averaged 33 against them around there in the four regular sure. season games. But, but they're too good defensively with too many options on most nights for anybody to just go completely nuclear on them. And, you know, I think the other takeaway, Tim, from what you, you just kind of highlighted is Draymond as the MVP for them of these playoffs so far. Uh, is it possible that he just has a bad night at the office? Sure. You know what I mean? Like he's been smart with his offensive decision-making, averaging almost a triple-double, locked in defensively, energy is there, you know, seems to just be fully engaged. I think, you know, he is a little bit of their – not a little bit. He's their spiritual warrior guy. And so if he A lot of times he's the one out, guy on that team with a pulse. Right. And so if, he, if he's off the tracks for whatever reason, you see like a ripple effect sometimes with – Durant and the way he competes on both ends. I also wonder, and this is unique to tonight, is just that idea that when you have waited uh, so long to see 
a guy of Steph's stature back on the floor, I think they're going to have to be really cognizant to not get Todd watching, to not lose what they have defensively and the five guys on a string mentality uh, as they sit there and probably overanalyze how Steph looks and how Steph feels. And, and it's, you know, this has never been the Kobe Bryant Lakers approach, you know, when it comes to the way the Warriors are built, but Steph's a special player and you, you can get caught watching them. And so they can't do that. And it's, you know, that's a unique component that they're going to have to navigate through. And maybe the Pelicans come out with more fire and it changes the dynamics. But again, it's, it's been stark for me to like the contrast between being blown away by New Orleans in the first round and so impressed with what they did. And, you know, maybe I did buy in even a little bit too much, but you know, we'll see. And that'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, I I think New Orleans deserved all the plaudits they had, but you, you look at that series and I watched all those games and, you know, they, they shut down Damon Lillard with, with Drew Holiday. And then it was essentially CJ McCollum against the Blazer, against the entire Pelican team because they had nobody else who could create their own shot. And, that that's kind of the, the the reverse situation is kind of what's happened to them now, where they they've really it's really just become Anthony Davis against the Warriors, and they can't they're they're not good enough to win that way. Um, Here's the thing, too, like just to piggyback on that. Sure, I was listening to CJ's. Have you listened to CJ's uh, podcast at all yet? I've not had a chance to. No, I have it saved. It's good. It's I like it because it's it's not every day. I mean, a lot of you know players do podcasts, but in real time in the playoffs. Uh, you know, to have a guy sharing his perspective. I mean, he did a pod like two days after they got swept, and I give him credit because I thought for sure that he would go dark, and sure enough, he's on there breaking down what it felt like to get swept. So on the pod, CJ breaks down the fact that after they got swept, they did a post-mortem video session with their team, and he highlighted the fact that they had the most missed open looks in the first round of the playoffs, and that resonated with me. I, I looked at some of that tape, and you, Pelicans played nice D, and you give him credit, but Portland missed a ton of open looks, and that's the obvious difference between playing the Blazers and playing the Warriors. Is right now it's it's all those open windows. You know the, the Warriors are going right through them. The way they shoot the ball, you're going to pay, and before you know it, you see a second quarter like we saw the other night, and you know nine times out of ten, that's what they're going to give you offensively. Well, and I I think that the actual difference there to me is not that the Warriors are missing those shots; it's that the the Blazers had no threats. Where if you if you look at that series, they played it right. They said the other guys on this team can't beat us, and they can't. The yeah. problem is Golden State has Kevin Durant, and right. the, the Blazers have Evan Turner or Mo Harkless or Alfred Camino, right? Like that's the that's the difference. Right. Where right. even you know, and that's even without Steph being in the mix. But they don't have that. You know, they don't have those guys on the wings that if you're gonna if you're gonna lock down Dame and CJ, that you can go oh, okay, we can give the ball to this guy. Um, and they had nobody right. who could guard Davis. I mean, they were you know they threw Zach right. Collins out there to the Wolves. I mean that that's why like. You know, it's it, it that that's why to me, like I, I think that CJ's right because you know, watching that series, they didn't miss a lot of open looks, but they they missed designed open looks, and that's why the, that's to come back to the Warriors. That's why Draymond and Iguodala to me are so critical in terms of how they shoot the ball. Yeah. The one game they've lost this this postseason, Draymond was one for six, Iguodala was zero for one, so they were one for seven in San Antonio. And, and, and Clay missed shots. Like you can't have all three of those things. Right. Clay was four of sixteen. Right. And it, that's why, you know, the games they've won, you know, game one of the first round, you know, they're three for eight. Game two, they're five for nine. Game three, they're uh, three for ten. Game four or game five, I should say, they're they're three for 11. Even in those two games were pretty close games that they, they you know, they win kind of close. Then the other night they go two for five in a game they win by 20. I mean, if they're shooting 35% or more, I really think that's the cutoff. If you're under 35 with them, 
then I think Golden State doesn't have enough offense from these, you know, obviously they have their three stars now that Steph's back. But, you know, you look down the roster, guys like uh, Sean Livingston and David West and Kevon Looney and, you know, really other than Nick Young, who's probably not going to play much. I mean, they don't have any guys on the bench who are really going to go off in a game. So if Livingston, if, if Iguodala and Draymond can be left alone and just, you know, firing blanks from three, well then, right. you know, maybe they can, maybe they're only going to score 100 points or 105 points. You can win 110 to 105. But right. Um, but if, if they're making shots, that's what to me, then it's, then it's curtains because you're going to get somewhere between 60 and 90 points from the other three guys. And if they both hit a few shots and you have to guard them, I, I think at that point it's game over. I agree. I agree. By the way, along those lines, my favorite thing of these playoffs, but even before then, Warriors related, is when opposing defenses play off of Draymond and he beats the odds and he actually hits the shots. And then he barks at the opposing bench as if he's shooting 45% from beyond the arc. <laughs> like, he did it in the last game. He was waving his arm, you know, like, go ahead, leave me alone. You know, I'll show you. Like, okay, he got him this time. But, you know, he's, you're right. That's another X factor for them. But then you add Steph, you know, to spin it forward now that he's back. That's where you talk about curtains. I mean, it, it feels like curtains right now for the Pelicans. Yeah, it sure does. Now let, let's shift to the other. Let's shift to the other series. Uh, Rockets, Rockets, Jazz. Jazz really had kind of the performance I think everybody would have expected in Game One. They play this slugfest against the Thunder. Thirty-six hours later, they're in Houston, uh, playing the Rockets, and Houston gets hot from three, and the Jazz are without Ricky Rubio, and it becomes kind of a boat race in the first half before the Jazz make it look somewhat respectable in the second. Um, do you do you think that Utah? has a chance to make this a series or do you think the loss of Rubio uh, combined with their, you know, just general offensive limitations are, are going to be too much for them to overcome, to make this uh, competitive? Um, I don't like down those guys cause they're on a heck of a run. And, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if Quinn Snyder, who I voted for for coach of the year and his staff find a way to kind of turn the tide a little bit. But if I got to pick a side, I say, I do think they're in trouble. I think the lack of, offensive options is a problem i think that probably more importantly um it's the idea that what rudy gobert does at least so far has been somewhat nullified because of the rocket style he you know he had moments last year i remember when he would come into oracle to play the warriors and he'd been on this incredible tear defensively as like the bill russell of his time and then he gets surrounded by shooters and the Warriors offense and all these options. And he was like a giraffe who just was stumbling all over the floor. He couldn't figure out where to be in space. He couldn't figure out how to be the intimidator. And there was a lot of that against Houston. They spread you out so much. And then Clint Capella is all over the floor coming off pick and roll and, and making him work. And he's got to, Rudy has to account for him. So, you know, I felt like if synergy tracked just how much time a guy spends on, you know, in the paint, I'd be I'd venture to guess that Rudy was in the paint, you know, far less in game one than he had been in any of the game in recent memory. So I feel like he's always the MVP for them. And he's the guy that if they take away his superpowers at all, then they're in trouble. And that happened in game one. Then you had the Rubio thing. I, I love Joe Ingles game. Uh, you know, he's a good playmaker, too, which is overlooked. I think he can help with the Rubio absence, but it's asking a lot for him to, you know, guard the way he has to on multiple, you know, scoring threats like the Rockets have, and then also go give you 20 on the other end. So it does feel like they're just up against it right now. Posting Up is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? 
Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code POSTINGUP to get $20 off your first in-home massage. That's promo code POSTINGUP. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I agree with you. I'm a little hesitant about that because, like I said, I think game one was really set up to be a boat race from the beginning. Um, and I, I do, I, I will have a better feel for that after game two. I think if Utah can, even if they just keep game two close, uh, I'll feel I feel like they'll have a chance to go to, to, go to Utah and win both those games. Um, I wasn't overly impressed with the Rockets in the first round. I watched most of that series against the Wolves. Yeah. And, you know, they had a couple of big quarters. And obviously, the 50-point quarter against the Timberwolves, and they're capable of doing that. But for the most part, their role players looked like role players in the playoffs who were kind of tight and missing a lot of open shots. And um, they just didn't look this, like the same kind of team they'd been during the regular season. Now, maybe they'll blitz the, the Jazz here four in a row. And, and that, that certainly wouldn't stun me because they do have a ton of talent. But um, I, I, I'm with you on Quinn Snyder. I do think he can, he can game some stuff up. And I, I do wonder if – if they have a little bit more rest, and I think that's why, to me, the two days off at the end of the beginning of the series are pretty big for them. Um, not that they're going to get Rubio back, but just to get some legs back under them. Because going from going from that game six the other night with all the energy that, that went into that game to knock sure. out the, the thunder and all the emotion that was involved there to then turn around 36 hours later and have to play you know, the, the number one seed in the West on the road um, after a flight without one of their start, starting players um, – I think it's kind of hard to look at that game and get a real sense of, um, you know, where this, where this Utah series, this Utah-Houston series is going to be. I'll feel a lot if – it, if it's the same thing in game two, even after a couple of days off and a chance to kind of look over things, um, I, I'll feel a lot differently. Because, you know, like the thing I love about Mike D'Antoni and those guys in Houston is you know what they're going to do every game. Like they right. – they, they're, right. they're not they're, – they're not – they don't have the most complicated system. And I don't mean that as a slight. They just – they, you know – Mike, to his credit, is pretty upfront about, hey, here's how we play. Here's what we're going to do. Good luck trying to stop us. He's always been like that. It's and, like poker, man. Like, they know right. what hand they have. They know the odds. And so they play the numbers. That's it. Right. Right. I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna play the numbers all the time. And, you know, right. it's up to you to try to figure out a way to either beat the system or overwhelm it. And, right. you know, that's why you're right. I mean, the, the Rudy Gobert dynamic against them is fascinating. He's not – a guy you typically would look at that could really be able to keep up with those guys in the pick and roll. Can he do a better job in game two? Can he get some more shot creation? I mean, Donovan Mitchell's been unbelievable in these playoffs, but if he's got to score 40 points a game for seven games, that's probably a little too much to ask, even for him at this point, where it seems like he can jump over every hurdle that's put in front of him. Uh, Listen, real quick to fill in a gap, like you mentioned Donovan and his playmaking and what he does. You know, what do you and I hear all the time kind of behind the curtain from the Warriors side in relation to OKC that as dynamic and, you know, talented, amazing as Russell Westbrook is that the way they play the game makes it easy on whoever they're playing. It's straight ahead offense. It's not ever the pass that leads to the pass. And so the jazz challenge defensively in that series, no matter how talented Paul George is and Russ, um, it, it's just, it's night and day compared to now. I mean, again, I know the rocket system is not complex, but it is multi-layered. Complex, not complex, more. doesn't mean it's not hard to stop. Right, right, and it's you know it's having. Uh, I was going to make a non-PC analogy, but it's just it's having <laughs> multiple threats pointed at you. I don't like gun references. That's where I was going. Yeah, that's, but that's it's just, probably a better you know, idea. 
I'm just saying, like, it's, it's just, you have multiple threats coming at you and it's just a lot tougher. And I think the jazz learned the hard way in game one that again, give them their credit, but the way the thunder play the game made life a little bit easier on them than the Rockets will. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that it, I think I, I'm really curious to sit and watch that game tomorrow. I, I hope from a competitive standpoint that it is better. Cause I, I do think, um, like I said, even if they can make it close in game two, I, I think they'll have a real shot to win those games in, in Utah and at least make this interesting. Um, even if, even if the Rockets are likely to, uh, eventually emerge here, let's, let's hit a couple other stories around the West quick before we bounce, mentioned the thunder before, obviously the Paul George talk has already started. Um, I think that most, uh, I think that most people at this point, um, are going to assume that, uh, that Paul George is leaving. Um, but it, since you know, Paul pretty well, uh, you spent a lot of time with him. I was just curious kind of how you see the, uh, the Paul George sweepstakes, uh, at least initially here with a couple months now, exactly since today's May 1st until free agency. Uh, how do you see that as of now kind of preliminarily shaping up in terms of where he might go? I mean, it's, it's more interesting and more wide open. Uh, I guess I should say, I feel like the thunder chances, of keeping him feel better than they should, given that they just lost in the first round. But I don't know that that gets him. What does that get them from a 20% chance to a 35% chance? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I haven't talked to Paul recently. Um, you know, you, we try to mince these guys words and analyze them every free agency, but you and I both learned the hard way that that only gets you so far. Kevin Durant sat there and, told multiple national writers, you know, the night that he lost to the Warriors in the conference finals, that, that it was, he talked about representing the organization of the Thunder and being a leader and all these things that led you to believe, like, all, he, he might as well have pulled out the contract that day and he was going to sign it. And then obviously he left. So what happens is, this is why it's a nightmare for Sam Presti and company, is that now Paul is free and clear to analyze all these situations. And we all know that, sure, the tampering, you know, uh, timeline. Don't even say. Don't warning. even. Don't even say that. Yeah, that stuff's already well, started. It's already started. Right. It's already well, started. You know, like that's the problem. That's why the Cavs fans and Kobe Altman and Dan Gilbert, uh, if they want to hold on to LeBron, they better hope that he keeps moving because you don't want to. Uh, these guys, for for the most part, like the superstars, they are pros. Which is to say that I do truthfully believe that when they are in the playoffs, you know, I don't think Paul George was going between game two and three. Going to his agent Aaron Mintz saying, "What's yeah, the latest?" That's, yeah, that stuff here? is that stuff is nonsense. I mean, the people who the people who think that stuff are are silly, just as silly as the people who think that the free agency meetings start on July first. I mean, it, you know that this stuff, and it's not that the players right, are do doing this stuff ahead of time. You, it's, but... it, it's not that the players are doing this stuff ahead of time and like going to meetings. It's that they have agents who their jobs are to look into stuff and know what's going on. And I mean, again, like these players aren't dumb, right? Like for all the time that people who are right. on the outside sit and look at different scenarios, you think Paul George isn't looking around when he's watching playoff games and going, "Hey, like that would be interesting." Uh, or LeBron James isn't looking at you know what the what the Sixers are doing or what the Lakers are doing or what uh, even what his team looks like on a game to game basis, going, "Hey, like in like thinking about that stuff." I mean, I, that that's just a natural right. reaction. But like people thinking that like these guys are like Paul George is like you know thinking there is like in the middle of, you know, between game three and four, he's calling his agent Aaron Mintz and saying, Hey, Aaron, listen, like start feeling out the Lakers about what the deal is here. Right. Like that, that kind of stuff I think is, is nonsense. 
No, I agree. But the thing is, again, once you, the players clock out, once their postseason comes to an end, I think that's where the danger zone is right. for the teams trying to hold on to them. Right. Because now now maybe it was just the agent back-channeling before then, but now the players are a little more intrigued, a little more interested, wanting to learn a little bit more. And, you know, again, for the Cavs, uh, that's why they need to keep LeBron in the playoffs. For Paul and Thunder, that's what I'd be worried. Uh, we'll see, too. I think, you know, Chris Paul's situation last summer, too, it was a little bit instructional for me where you learned a lot about how, I mean, they, you know, he has his stuff all on lockdown far in advance of July 1 and figured out what he wanted to do. And when he even did that documentary for ESPN talking about his decision to essentially force the trade to Houston and pick up the player option for this season, right? you know, it was incredible how he seemed to have a really good grip on the landscape on what, what each team was proposing without anything having actually happened because free agency hadn't begun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Amazing how that happened. Right. So Everybody's got Leon we, Rose's as much phone as we, number. Right. As much as we cover the league in depth, I still think there's this whole thing that goes on in June that we don't even touch. Yeah, of course. I reported Joakim Noah signed, was going to sign a four-year, $72 million contract <laughs> on June 26th. Right. And people thought it was right. insane. And then six days right. later, he signed up four-year deal. He agreed to a four-year deal for $72 million. Right, like Jeff, remember I mean, this, Jeff Teague last year? Right, there one? there were four, yeah. there were five or six or seven signings that were that were done at twelve midnight right. on July first. You know, like right. gee, <laughs> how did that right. happen? You know, it's like it's just the way it is, right? It's the right. way. And, Kawhi uh, Kawhi Leonard's last extension. I, I was that's right. It was as yeah. always. It was great work by Woj, but it was a midnight hit, and wow, the story's written already. That's right. That's incredible. That's right. Ready I mean, roll. look, yeah. look, the reason. And, and people might get mad about that, but listen, the reason why NBA free agency is the best free agency in sports right now is because these teams have the ability ahead of time to line stuff up and make moves uh, and then make more moves. And they can, they can stagger stuff out and they can, they can use the moratorium to get their ducks in a row. And then when it ends, they can sign everybody in order sequentially to work it under the cap. I mean, all people get mad about, well, why can't, why is this, you know, why do we have to have this delay? Why don't we have stuff in June, all this different stuff? Well, this is why, because if you took away that stuff, the league wouldn't be as exciting because you couldn't do as many complicated things as there are now. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a, you know, for people who like to complain about it, if for, if you love free agency and you're interested in player movement, which I think you and I both agree, judging by traffic and interest and what we write, that's the stuff that people care more about than the games at this point. Well, right. this this is what comes with it. It comes with guys, right. you know, it comes with agents, you know, working stuff behind the scenes in June and, you know, Chris Paul deciding on June 20th he wants to play for the, for the Rockets and making a trade. And look, I think, you know, that I think you could start to see that kind of scenario play out more. Maybe you see Paul George say, hey, listen, I got a year left on my deal. I'll opt into it, into it, into it and go somewhere I want to be, right? Right. Uh, in a trade. Same right. with LeBron James. Like LeBron Brian, can do it too. Brian Windhorst, our buddy, has been saying that for months. Like, just because teams don't have cap space doesn't mean LeBron can't go to the Cavs and say, hey, I'm going to opt in and I want you to trade me to X. And if you're the Cavs, what would you rather do? Lose LeBron and free agency for nothing or would you rather get something back? Well, they're probably going to take right. something back every time unless it's just terrible right. stuff. So, um, you know, the Clippers were a good example. They could have said, now nah, we're not going to help you do this, right? But they got back a bunch of stuff. And so they said, hey, like, we'd rather get something than lose this guy. Um, right. So I could see that path, you know, starting to become more feasible for guys now that Chris has done it. Sure. I agree. What is your, what is your take on the Portland situation? Um, quiet right now, which, you know, I don't know what to think. Um, when I had poked around on that in the immediate aftermath, it seemed like there was a lack of clarity. I think it matters that 
and I'm, you know, I guess mainly first and foremost with Terry Stotts and his future. But, you know, I think it matters that Damian Lillard is essentially, you know, right there with uh, Warren Legary as, as Terry's agent um, and a guy who endorses him, you know, to the hilt. So that matters. Damian is still front and center as their centerpiece. And so if you're Paul Allen, I just think the tricky spot to be in, you know, when you got Neil O'Shea, the GM, coming out quickly, doing a little bit of damage control and on the record being quoted saying that, you know, I think I'd rather – evaluate this team based on 82 games rather than four you know that's uh, i understand the sentiment and why he said it but that's just not pro sports you know well, it's also it's not. also some job preservation there too right i mean i think the right. thing the thing i've heard a lot is that you know it's it seems like it's either nobody goes anywhere or they clean house completely in portland right and maybe right. maybe you know i think terry's done a great job uh you know i think neil largely has done a good job i think like a lot of guys he got caught up in 2016 uh, and and paid some money to, in deals that are they're going to be stuck on their books for a while. But that you could say that about two thirds of the league. Um, and I also think you know you look last summer. You know Zach Collins is probably going to be a good player. The one thing I would probably say though is that when you look at Portland's roster, what could they have used is more wing players that could do stuff right. And if they just kept fifteen, twenty, and twenty six and not moved up, they probably could have you know they could have drafted say OG Ananobi, Kyle Kuzma, and Josh Hart. Now. It's easy to go back and like cherry pick guys and say like they could have picked this guy or this guy or this guy. But right. you look at their team now and they what invested. Did they get? Zach was what number again? Uh, they traded up to ten with the Kings to get Zach Collins, yeah, and then that's they right. and yeah. they drafted Caleb Swanigan another big at twenty six. And you look at their team; they now have four or five bigs. They're kind of like Golden State. The difference is Golden State has Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, and Kevin Durant, and they have Moharko, Seven Turner, and Alfred Camino on the way. Right? Yeah. I mean, the what if things are always tough, and you know, I guess to keep it going, you could also. I mean, they traded up for ten. You could have grabbed Donovan Mitchell at that. Point. Well, sure, that's so, you know, yeah. that's the other thing, you know, and I, that's not to knock Collins. I, I think he showed some signs. I think he's going to be a good player. But when you look at their team, right now, you have Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, who are in their late, you know, mid, getting into their later twenties, and you have a nineteen-year-old center who's probably still going to take another year or two, and you know, they are just kind of stuck. So. You know, I, I do. I do think that situation is going to be very interesting. Um, you know, to see exactly how uh, how that shakes out. I mean, you have what's going on there. You have what's going on in Detroit, where there's still you know three weeks after the regular season, there's no clarity about what's going to happen there at all, um, which is kind of mind blowing, really. I mean, we're we're only I think a couple weeks away from the combine at this point, and you still don't know uh, if there's going to be changes there. Um, you know, it it is kind of interesting, and you know, even. There was even, you know, I think there was even some thought that if the Raptors went out early, perhaps there'd be some trouble there. Uh, you know, some different, some different stuff like that. But, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the Portland situation is interesting to me because that they're kind of like the Wizards of the Western Conference, where they're, I think, kind of locked into being a bottom half of the West team, even you know, bottom half of the playoff, I should say, team in the West, and they don't really have a lot of mobility to move up unless they do a bold move and trade one of their star guards, which, like right. you said. Neil has been pretty out front about not wanting to do that. So, um, you know, I think, you know, for both those teams, I do kind of wonder what the future looks like because there isn't, to me, a clear path for them to take another step, barring, you know, like I said, really making a big swing on a move that they haven't necessarily shown the proclivity to want to do. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe.
You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash postup newsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. Well, I think they've got the appetite. Uh, they made a really hard push to get Paul George. Couldn't get that done. Well, but what I mean, what I mean is that yeah. what I mean is that to make uh, like the Wizards are the same way, right? Like they both think like, hey, we've got two good guards. Let's get a third player, and we'll be great. The problem is the only way they can get a, another really good player is to trade one of their current really good players. That's more what I mean. Yeah, I mean they were trying to get it done with with three firsts, which is a pretty healthy thing to put on the table. But you know that had an interesting component where. You know, these are all human beings, right? So Kevin Pritchard coming from Portland, uh, you know, probably not all that inclined to send Paul George all the way out to his old stomping ground. Well, and think about somebody. it too, right? I mean, the other thing is, like, think about think about the trade there, right? You're talking about three picks in the back half of the first round or right. a guy from Indiana who was drafted second and a guy who was drafted ninth uh, who are both right. controllable guys for a while, right? Right, like, yeah. That's just not And the timeline doesn't – you need somebody to help Damian CJ now. Right. And, you know, and, and that the picks don't get that done. But I mean, you're right. I, I think I, I feel a little bit for Neil from this standpoint and not trying to be funny, but it's like I mean, he's got to have whiplash right now when it comes to the victory lap that they were all doing with good reason at the end of the regular season, because sure. they got enough out of all the others, as Shaq always calls them. You know, Evan Turner started showing signs of life. Mo Harkless was playing well. Yep. And they, they really they seem to have a good culture, a good environment. Damien gets a ton of credit for the yep. way he handles himself and the leadership. And it seemed like they had essentially, for lack of a better way of putting it, clapped back at everybody who said that Damien and CJ had to get broken up. Right. Uh, and then you, you go from that to, <laughs> to holy completely steamrolled. Right. 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 You know, so uh, I don't know what that means going forward, but I, I'm not shocked that they're taking the time to, to chew on it a little bit because, you know, it's hard to know, you know, which, you know, which story tells you more about who they actually are. Yeah, no. And I listen, I don't I don't necessarily think that they need to break it up. And that that's kind of the complicated thing about this stuff. Right. And we'll, we'll probably wrap up on this where, like, you look at. Uh, you look at the Wizards, you look at the Blazers, uh, and like, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with being a solid playoff team for six, seven, eight years, right? And that's where both those, right. that's the kind of trajectory both of those teams are on. The question is, do you, are you content being the most likely the five through eight seed for, you know, I know Portland, you know, Portland, I think was one game or two games out of eighth, right? So like, it's not like they were a three seed, but it was a three seed that was kind of like one of right. six teams. So are you right. content being five to eight for five, six, seven years and kind of being a decent team and having a nice run? Um, like, I don't think that's the worst case scenario. Like, think about team, think about like the team where you're at, Sacramento, right? Like, right. They, they would, would love that. They would kill for that. Same with a team right, right now, like Orlando or like Charlotte or uh, Detroit or, uh, you know, a lot of these teams where it's, you know, right. Phoenix, where these teams where they haven't made the playoffs for five, six, seven, eight years. The Knicks, the Nets, like, yeah, like if we could have a good team for a while, that would be good. Um, right. You know, so I don't think that's the worst thing. But if you do want to take that next step and you do have stars, like you have John Wall come out and say, hey, we got to make some moves here. And you have Dan right. Lillard, who is, you know, pretty strident about the fact that he wants to compete, you know, at a high level in the league. Um, not that he's like angled to get out of Portland, but he, he doesn't want to be losing in the first round. 
Um, right. If you have those, if you have that kind of situation, it's hard to um, it's hard to look at the situations those teams are in now and think, yeah, like what we've got is good enough because it's not. Right. So, and and if you're going to try to make another step, it requires a really hard choice that I'm not necessarily sure that these teams are going to be willing to make. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, isn't Nurkic restricted this summer? Yep. There's another I mean, that's decision a huge... they have to make. Like, what do you, what do yeah. you do there? You know. Because it was already like you know. Again, that's a guy that Damian has kind of co-signed on, endorsed all the way through, and it's not really a secret anymore. And Chris Haynes has written this at ESPN about how uh, Damian was not happy to see Will Barton go, and so the last thing they want to do is lose another guy that you know that uh, is part of the solution in Damian's mind. Yep. But he didn't play well when it mattered most. And he, he did and, nothing. And you're now you know? in a league. You're now in a league where you know traditional bigs that aren't great defensively are. Um, are there are more and more of them and less and less of a commodity and Nurkic wants a lot of money and right. are, you know, like, are you going to be willing to pony up big money to pay him long-term? I mean, that seems right. like a, that seems like a losing bet. If I'm, if I'm the Blazers, I don't, I don't necessarily right. think right. I'm going to sign up for that. You take the human component out of it. I think it's a no brainer. You don't pay him, but then, you know, then you run the risk. It's a little bit not to get off the track too much, but I, I debated yesterday with somebody about, it was with our buddy, Larry Kuhn. He was on our podcast about OKC, and when they went and traded for Mello, that you you probably could have argued at the time that it wasn't a good move because Mello was on the decline, but the message that that sent to Paul George about how we're all in when it comes to getting stars, you know, then maybe that helped you Well, and remember, and remember, who signed a five-year extension the next week? I was trying to remember the timeline. Was that, they got Mello before? It would, no. He signed his extension on Kevin Durant's birthday, which also happened to be, you know, a week or two after they traded for Carmelo. And maybe you would have signed it anyway, okay, and the right. plan was to sign it on Kevin Durant's birthday the whole time. So I was in Oklahoma right. City when he did it. But that's right. At this, you know, it also you also look at the situation and, you know, I don't think there's any you know, it, it certainly would be easy to say that that was a move that he was like, wow, that's a big time move. Yeah. I think I think any, you know, small market team in Portland applies has got to convince its stars that we can play with the big boys when it comes to building the roster. And sometimes that might manifest itself in moves that are more about the glitz than they are the substance. And I think that's maybe the, the danger with Nurkic. Are you going to give him all that money? Just in Nurkic, you know, it's not a really great comparison comparing him to Melo, but I do think there's a similar thread there that, you know, if you, are you going to do that just because you want to keep Damian happy? And then guess what? If Nurkic doesn't earn that money and it ties you up, in the future and you're not winning games, guess what? He's not going to be that happiness is only going to be so long. There's going to be a shelf life on it. So uh, I think they're going to look pretty hard at that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. So, all right. Uh, thanks for, thanks for hopping on, man. Let people know. I was going to, I was going to pump up the Larry podcast, but you already did it. So pump up uh, that and whatever else you got going on over the next few days here for uh, for USA today. Yeah. Larry was great. Hadn't talked to him on the pod before. So that was fun. If you somehow don't know who he is, you know, resident CBA expert, Longtime ESPN contributor, and he's pumping a uh, summer sports classroom in Vegas. So if you're an aspiring executive or scout or analyst or media member, check that out. I actually help uh, out with just, a small part of that. It's a cool, uh, it's a cool event. It's something you should. Uh, it's something if you are interested in trying to get into the business, it is an interesting. Uh, it is an interesting few days worth worth looking into. And hey, if you can survive and make it to the end, then you're you're made for the business because six days. Being locked in on a seminar in a classroom type setting while in Vegas takes a whole lot of focus. So more power to you. <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. 
Uh, but no, Larry was great. So that's the latest pod. We've been having to do like evergreen podcast because we only go once a week and the action changes so much. We're not really diving into the playoff action right now, but good conversations. The one before that was Ian Thompson talking about his soul of basketball book. Another good chat. Uh, you know, it's the website just pumping out, you know, hopefully most of the time quality content on usatoday.com and, and had a Drew Holiday story recently that I felt good about and uh, and now trying to dive into the series and, and tell a few stories. But thanks for having me on, brother. Sure, man. No, the Drew Holiday story was great, so definitely check that out. But thanks, uh, thanks for doing this, man. I'll see you in a few hours over at Oracle. All right, brother. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Sam for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it as always. Uh, be sure to go follow him on Twitter and follow his work throughout the playoffs. He does a great job for USA Today. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, on fin- Facebook at Tim Bontemps NBA, and the pages of the Washington Post are on our website at washingtonpost.com sports. Please go support the other podcasts the Post has, from Can You Do That, the Constitutional, the Presidential, uh, the Fantasy Football Beat during the football season, Letters from War. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff. Uh, going to be more in the future, so be sure to go check that out. Go to washingtonpost.com slash podcast to find everything we're doing there. Please go find the podcast wherever you can get it, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, TuneIn, Google Play, uh, wherever you get it. Give us a five-star rating interview. Really helps us out a lot when you do that, so be sure to take the time and do it. Help us out. Thank you to Glenn Yoder and the Western States for the theme music for the pod. Glenn is the NBA editor at The Post, good friend of mine. Uh, his band is really good. I've seen them in concert. People love the music on the pod, so be sure to go find them on the interwebs wherever you can get it and support their music. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hopefully be back again later this week, but until then... We'll talk to you all again soon.